Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 112, Putting Away the Toys. One of the biggest topics in terms of establishing a lasting peace during the 1920s was that of disarmament. Last week, I touched on the failures of diplomacy pre-World War I and how the League of Nations was established to provide an international mechanism to head off a crisis before it got too bad, which prior had been extremely lacking. There was another concern, though, beyond just how nations interacted with each other that was recognized post-World War I as being a source of instability. Massive arms races. In the years leading up to 1914, each great power engaged in massive military buildups that left their armies and navies more capable than ever before, but by the same token became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy as well, what with a weapon constructed but being unused, being useless, and all that. It also damaged relations between nations, as improvements in military strength by one power understandably threatened its neighbors. The German army was considered not just big enough, but well-equipped enough that France and Russia had little choice but to form an alliance to contain them, locking all three nations in diplomatically. Then the rapid expansion of the German navy so alarmed the British, who understood that a large German fleet could only be directed against them, that they abandoned generations of aloofness and joined in with the Entente. In short, the presence of large militaries and armories had a destabilizing effect, and many post-war leaders took the initiative to put restrictions on military spending. This wasn't all altruistic. Many simply recognized that the crazy spending levels even before 1914 couldn't be sustained in the post-war years and wanted assurances that when they drew their forces down, so too would everyone else. A big boost to the prospects of disarmament was the restrictions placed on Germany by the Versailles Treaty. They could possess only a lightly equipped army of 100,000 and a navy that was at best a coastal defense force. The terrifying machine that had stalked the heart of the European continent for decades was laid low. And while the West was apprehensive about military threats from Soviet Russia, especially during their lunge into Poland during 1920, that threat appeared to recede in short order, and the international opinion of the Soviet Union's military capabilities was consistently low. There simply weren't as many threats in the world during the 1920s that would justify high levels of military spending, and the peacemakers took the opportunity to scrap much of the world's armaments. Much of these discussions were done through the League of Nations, but this week centers on a little standalone event that took place outside the League, the Washington Naval Conference. Now, you might justifiably point out that World War I was primarily a land war and that naval affairs shouldn't have been quite as important. Well, during the 1920s, the question of navies had a newfound importance compared to just a few years prior. With the German and Russian militaries ruined, the big land forces that could threaten entire continents were removed from the board. The remaining big powers, the US, UK, France, Italy, and Japan, were scattered across the world and to a nation had interests that necessitated large navies. That means for this episode, I'll be covering the details of the conference as well as the strategic considerations of the participants. Considerations that would hold true and be obsessed over all the way to 1939. For the UK, the Navy had always been paramount as they were an island nation who economically depended on overseas trade and had a gigantic empire to patrol. Japan was similar to the UK, just on a smaller scale. 
island nation, dependent on trade, had an empire on foreign shores. The U.S. was a rising power with interests extending across the length of the Pacific and also had a self-appointed mission of safeguarding the Western Hemisphere. France and Italy eyed each other warily in the Mediterranean Sea, with the naval chiefs in each nation regarding the other as their primary rival, even when allies in wartime. France, too, had a huge empire that spanned the globe, and while Italy's overseas holdings were much more modest, they had a strong desire to expand them. With many of the old empires gone, the calculus of relations was changing as well. The British and Japanese were allied, but that partnership was set to expire. The United States, already seeing Japan as its most likely enemy down the road, wanted the partnership ended so as to remove the specter of contending with two world-class navies. The British themselves were increasingly ambivalent about their alliance with the Japanese and were far more sensitive to American desires. The Royal Navy of the UK had been the largest and most powerful in the world, but the economic rise of the US and its entry into World War I changed all that. In a show of industrial might, the US expanded its navy and if its construction program were completed post-war, would have matched the Royal Navy. And it would have been more modern, too, as much of the Royal Navy consisted of ships that predated the war. For the UK, a new naval arms race with the Americans was simply unaffordable, and one they would likely lose anyway, even if, if it were fully committed to. Remember that the early 20s saw a severe economic recession in the UK, and while some of their competitors suffered a similar fate, the commitments of the British were much larger. And those were just the considerations towards the Americans. The UK leaders were fully aware of the problems their sprawling empire posed, and while its navy was vast, it was also stretched. On account of its commitments the world over, they had to keep an eye on everyone else, too. This was unsustainable, and the thoughts of the British leadership turned towards finding a way to safeguard their position diplomatically. While most of the powers were receptive to talking things over, the big question mark were the Americans. Woodrow Wilson's administration had been an active partner with the others, but when the administration of the Republican Warren Harding began, diplomatic engagement was scaled back drastically. Harding had stressed the idea of keeping as few foreign commitments as possible to the American people, which placed him in something of a diplomatic straitjacket. As a result, relations went almost silent between the U.S. and U.K., as the former signaled it had little interest in the endless conferences and goings-on of the other world powers. A sign of hope was noted when the U.S. Senate, also under Republican control, passed the Bora Resolution, which called for each major shipbuilding nation to scale back their outputs by half across the board. Taking that public sentiment as an opportunity, the British approached the Americans about a naval conference. The Americans first wanted the Anglo-Japanese alliance to expire as a precondition, which the British were all right with ending the connection, but wanted some advantageous agreement to replace it. So, the compromise that was pitched to the Americans in summer 1921 was that a successful treaty on naval controls would be a condition of letting the alliance expire. That way, even though Britain would lose a formal ally, there would be an acceptable framework that everyone could work within that would guarantee security without it. The U.S. government proved receptive to the offer. Discussions were started with the American ambassador to the U.K., George Harvey. Harvey is notable because he almost ruined the chances of the conference happening through gross incompetence. These days, being an ambassador to a close ally like the UK probably isn't a very demanding job. 
Instant communication means that the capitals of both nations can interact with each other directly, and the long-standing working relationship means that there are numerous points of contact. Not so much in those days, though. An ambassadorship was still an important post, and Warren Harding had a nasty habit of picking the wrong people for most any job. George Harvey was a friend of the president's, with no diplomatic experience, and was prone to getting drunk and making agreements on the spot without consulting his boss in the State Department. The British wanted a one-on-one preliminary conference to the main one, so as to hash out an agenda beforehand and make sure the two powers were on the same page. The American Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, was intensely suspicious of this idea and assumed it was a ploy by the British to trick the Americans into agreeing to their point of view before the main conference even began. Ambassador Harvey, though, when presented with the proposal in London, agreed to the idea immediately, again without consulting his boss. He was probably just being amicable and didn't see any harm in a little preliminary sit-down, but he didn't appreciate how suspicious Secretary Hughes was. Hughes wound up sending an unofficial delegate to London to act as the real go-between on the matter, and the British iced out Harvey entirely afterwards as an unreliable buffoon. That little summer hiccup overcome, the conference was agreed upon to meet in Washington, D.C. on November 12, 1921. In addition to the big five naval powers, smaller states like Belgium and Portugal were invited to attend and add their opinions to the proceedings, while China was also invited as hashing out an agreement on the West Pacific was also a priority. But the crux of the conference was going to be in limitations on naval sizes, and that means I'm going to take a lengthy aside to give a very basic sketch on how navies were composed and the types of ships that were discussed. I haven't gotten too deep into technical military matters just yet, mostly because the wars I've covered so far were more irregular than what you found in World War I and World War II, and because I'll be focusing on weapons development more during the 1930s and the second season. Today, though, it's time you learned about some of the finer points on how navies were composed. You're probably familiar with the term battleship. These were the prides of every nation's navy and were some of the biggest ships ever constructed but they weren't all built equal. They all shared the characteristic of having the heaviest armor and heaviest cannons. But technical specifications were always improving, and a battleship built in 1910 was outclassed by one that took to sea in 1920. There is also the distinction of the pre-dreadnought-type battleships. This distinction is based on the fact that the launch of the actual battleship called the Dreadnought by the Royal Navy in 1906 changed the warship game overnight. Before, battleships followed any number of designs and gun layouts, but the Dreadnought was so well designed that everyone just took that basic layout and went with that. The battleships built before that ship were simply put second class compared to the ones that followed that model. It was so popular that for a time, the name Dreadnought and Battleship effectively meant the same thing, although I'll be sticking with the term battleship here. Pre-dreadnought battleships were still around during the 1920s, and indeed many would stand service around the world going into World War II, but by then they were mostly training ships at best, and even then were usually phased out in short order. So yeah, they were the biggest ships, had the strongest armor, and typically had two heavy batteries of guns up front, and at least one in back. Those batteries each having either two or three heavy guns on them. The guns were usually 12 or 14 inches in caliber in the 1920s, but by World War II, these would have increased to 16 inches on some of those powerful models, with the Japanese Yamato-class of battleship famously boasting 18-inch guns. 
But gun size didn't count for everything, and as I mentioned, newer battleships outclassed older ones, not just in gun size or armor, but in range before refueling as well. Advances were being made, too, in targeting devices for guns of all classes. A little rude lesson that each nation learned in World War I was that while naval guns had gotten to be bigger, with longer range than ever before, actually hitting a moving target from those enhanced ranges was a tricky prospect. Ever more sophisticated targeting calculators helped with, you know, actually hitting something with those big guns. All told, battleships were the centerpieces of their respective fleets, and were intended first and foremost to tangle with corresponding ships of their class before bullying smaller vessels. Once a nation achieved battleship superiority over another, it would be hard for an opponent to surmount such large vessels without ones of their own. They were also understandably expensive as all hell, took a long time to build, and were also expensive to maintain. As such, they were immediately the biggest topic of conversation during the conference. Now, the next ship down the line was the Battle Cruiser. This type of ship was a bit newer and came out after the Dreadnought Revolution in ship design. The idea was a large craft of similar size and armament to a battleship, but would be considerably speedier on account of reducing armor. The British especially liked the idea of this ship as their far-flung empire meant fast-moving craft that could shuttle between potential hotspots was greatly preferred. Other nations had them, though, and were considered excellent for hunting craft smaller than battleships due to their speed and big cannons. A little problem with them, that the British discovered at Jutland especially, was that in a stand-up fight involving battleships, the less armored battlecruisers were terribly vulnerable to heavy guns. Despite that vulnerability, they were still among the most prestigious ships on the seas and considered a capital ship alongside the battleships. Next up were the proper cruisers, which came in two types, heavy and light. While by 1921 the two varieties weren't formally considered separate, ship design in the ensuing years saw the two develop on different paths. Cruisers, in general, were fast ships with longer ranges, which, as their name suggests, were meant for patrolling, making them very handy utility ships for nations with overseas empires. The heavy cruisers were formidable ships with enough armor to withstand broadsides from anything smaller than the battleships and battle cruisers, and packed enough punch to sink anything of that size as well. Their layout was similar to the larger ships, typically possessing two to three batteries of eight-inch guns. They were popular because they could handle most ships on the seas and were a lot cheaper to produce and maintain compared to the big boys. They were also a little bit more expendable. If the situation was risky and you didn't want to chance your irreplaceable battleships, you could send in the heavy cruisers. Given their cost-effectiveness and utility in the vast Pacific, they were very popular with the Japanese. Light cruisers, on the other hand, were more vulnerable, although they were far less focused on stand-up fights. They typically bristled with numerous lighter 6-inch guns, had a fast speed, and light armor. They were capable of putting out a lot of fire in a short time frame, albeit of a caliber that would mostly harm ships of a similar size or smaller. They were usually equipped, though, with torpedo tubes, which could change the dynamic of a fight real fast. A single torpedo could cripple or even outright sink a larger ship. It all depended on getting properly lined up on one without getting sunk yourself. In practice, this didn't happen all that much. A proper battle line would provide plenty of defense from the light ships. But the threat did force commanders to be cautious, even with their big ships, and to keep them nestled at the center of a swarm of smaller screens. Their presence might not be an overwhelming threat, but would force commanders to tread carefully. Light cruisers were also excellent raiding ships, able to zip into an area, lay down a lot of fire from the smaller but faster firing cannons, and then leave. 
This was true not just of, of attacking other warships, but also interdicting shipping as well. On account of their cheaper cost and multi-use capabilities, the UK had a special affection for them. The last of the normal ships were destroyers. These craft were small, extremely fast, and had next to no significant armor. They were lightly gunned with one or maybe two five-inch guns. The guns were mostly there to ward off smaller ships and maybe contribute in a larger group. Their big offensive output, though, were torpedoes. Like a light cruiser, they could swoop in on larger ships, but destroyers were even faster and presented an even smaller target on approach. Their original intent had been to offer a cheap option for sinking battleships, although again, in practice, those torpedo runs didn't happen as much. They just presented the threat of one that commanders had to account for. Destroyers were also excellent anti-submarine ships. While escorting convoys, their rapid-firing 5-inch guns were more than enough to sink a submarine if caught on the surface. And if the sub dove, then it had depth charges, bombs that could be launched off the back of a destroyer into the water where they'd exploded at a preset depth. These ships were the fastest and cheapest to produce out of all the surface ships. Now, those are the traditional ships, but there are two other kinds that I'll cover real quick that became issues during the conference because nobody knew how to really sort them. First up are the submarines. Like destroyers, they were at first intended to be torpedo delivery devices that could kill capital ships cheaply, in their case using their ability to go underwater to be all stealthy-like. While there was some notable success on that front, the Germans hit upon their true calling during World War I, that of trade interdiction. Every nation had overseas trade, and that only stepped up during World War I as more materials had to feed the munitions factories. The Germans infamously used their subs to attack that merchant shipping. This was all a whole new world of combat, and it upset a lot of people on account of the submarines being able to materialize out of nowhere and suddenly attack a ship. The German submarine blockade that relied on sudden attacks was contrasted unfavorably with the British blockade, which had the security to halt ships and prevent them from reaching Germany without having to sink them. The general public, and the British in particular, were not thrilled with submarines, and while everybody would be allowed to have some, the British wanted to keep their numbers to a minimum. The last ship type I'll cover is the aircraft carrier. Since the advent of flight in 1903, people were immediately thinking about taking planes off of ships. This was achieved as early as 1910 off the deck of a U.S. cruiser. Experiments were made to make room on ships for planes, and the first naval air attack was made by the British in July 1918. That same year, the first dedicated aircraft carrier was deployed by the Royal Navy. Most of the early carriers were actually conversions of either ocean liners, cruisers, or battle cruisers, meaning the tops of the ships were replaced with flight decks. Despite the humble beginnings, everybody immediately saw the potential of such ships, especially in the Pacific, where huge distances meant that friendly airfields might not be available. But as I mentioned a moment ago, it was the battleships that dominated the proceedings. The U.S. and U.K. successfully pushed for a ratio system, meaning that the main five naval powers would keep a certain tonnage of battleships compared to one another. The ratios worked out to the U.S. and U.K. getting the max allowable amount of 525,000 tons worth of battleship. The Japanese, three-fifths of that amount, and France and Italy getting 1.75 tons for every five the U.S. and U.K. got. If that tonnage was exceeded, then the, the excess ships would have to be scrapped. Battleships were to be no more than 35,000 tons each. So theoretically, you could build a fleet of battleships that were a little bit lighter, but a little bit more numerous as well. This was met with some controversy, as it obviously created a formal pecking order. 
The Japanese were allowed 60% of what the Americans got, which the Japanese felt came just shy of their requirements. Their war games had concluded that when fighting a defensive war, they'd need a 70% fleet size if the entire American Navy decided to bear down on them en masse. This issue split the Japanese. The minister of the Navy, Kato Tamasaburu, recognized that Japan's severe economic recession prohibited it from launching an arms race, and what he was in favor of cooperating with the West. In exchange for Japan accepting the lesser fleet size, the U.S. conceded that it wouldn't further develop military installations in Guam and the Philippines. Kato, you might remember from the Japanese episodes, being briefly mentioned as the prime minister who died right before the Kanto earthquake happened. His diplomatic success at this conference was what recommended his eventual appointment to that posting. His position was opposed by another Kato, Vice Admiral Kato Kanji. This Kato was a hot-headed admiral who felt any potential agreement would be too limiting to Japan's interests. Recall back in the Japanese episodes how I spoke about the conflict in leadership between those who wanted to reconcile with the West and those who wanted an independent imperial policy. That conflict was on full display between the two, as they debated behind closed doors relentlessly. Eventually, Minister Kato had to simply tell a subordinate to shut up and accept that Japan was agreeing to the ratio system. Admiral Kato tried to go behind his boss's back and telegraph the naval general staff his extreme fears over what the treaty would do to their branch of the military. The minister Kato, though, saw that move coming and had already secured approval from the rest of the government and the general. The vice admiral would literally cry about it and condemn the agreement, but the deed was done. Minister Kato noted the incident and reportedly resolved to get the Navy under more civilian oversight once he returned to Japan, but given that he died in late 1923, just a year and a half after the conference, he never got the chance to see that fully executed. The French also expressed a measure of trepidation about the ratio system. In the 553, 1.75, 1.75 system, they were relegated to the least of the naval powers. Now, France had neglected naval affairs since the outbreak of World War I for purely understandable reasons, what with a massive land invasion happening during the war. But before 1914, the French had also engaged in shipbuilding programs and considered its navy to be a point of pride. They had been just behind the UK, US, and Germany in navy size, but it had been blocked from taking the third spot after Germany's collapse by the ascendancy of Japan. Now, despite their land preeminence and huge colonial empire, they were expected to accept parity with only the Italians. That was kind of a blow to their egos and demonstrated how far they were falling in global influence even after winning a world war. Also, it was a result of their erstwhile British friends completely backstabbing them. The U.S. was inclined to give them a navy the same size as Japan's, but the U.K. intervened and insisted that the Royal Navy should be capable of taking on both the French and the Japanese simultaneously. Which, uh, weird and completely unlikely combo there, but the British wanted as little competition as possible. While the French weren't happy about their new status, they did have some consolation. The first was that while the Italians were permitted to match the French Navy, they lacked the financial resources to build that many ships. The other was that France was permitted to build as many lighter ships, including submarines, as they wanted. This was partially due to French negotiators digging in on the issue of lighter ships, as their intention during the 20s was to focus on construction of subcapital ships in light of France's own fiscal difficulties. The British were alarmed by this as the French keeping a strong fleet of cruisers and submarines was directly threatening to their own empire and would give the French greater flexibility outside the Mediterranean. 
The British pressed for stricter limits on the smaller ships, and even trashed France in the international press over the matter. But the French wouldn't budge, and the British, unwilling to admit defeat, maneuvered to have light ships removed from the agenda entirely. The idea being that Britain could keep pace in the construction of smaller vessels. It would also let them build as many sub-hunters as they pleased, which was the big thing that they were scared of after the experience of Germany's submarine blockade. As a result, the scope of the conference was narrowed, and only capital ships would be restricted. There would be no limitations in tonnage for light ships. The one caveat was that cruisers were restricted to 10,000 tons each, and possessing 8-inch guns maximum, which became the standard heavy cruiser size. Uh, just as a little side note, aircraft carriers were restricted along the same lines as battleships, with the US and UK getting 135,000 tons worth of that ship type, and the max size allowed being 27,000 per carrier. A special exception was granted to France and Italy to have a higher tonnage allowed, as otherwise they'd be allowed a carrier and a half. Instead, they were just simply granted two full-sized carriers apiece. Italy, for its part, was very happy with the conference. Heck, their main disappointment was that it turned out to only be a naval conference. They were ready for everybody to voluntarily limit their armies and air forces, too. The focus of the Italians was also almost entirely in the Mediterranean, and for the longest time, the real focus was actually on the Adriatic only. Now they were being put on par with their rival France, and the Italian Admiralty was overjoyed. And while going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Royal Navy was out of the question, the ratio system did bring them a little more back to earth vis-a-vis -vis the Regia Marina, which was the official name of the Italian Navy. While Italy certainly could be counted among the big naval players, the nation's crippling lack of resources and industries meant that their construction programs would always take longer and produce fewer ships. Heck, even though they were allotted the tonnage to build two full-size carriers, those ships were never constructed due to other priorities. With the other naval powers limiting themselves, that made Italy all the more powerful in comparison. The agreement to limit fleet sizes came to be known as the Washington Naval Treaty, or also the Five Power Treaty, so-called because the signatories to it were the big five naval powers. Also because there were two other treaties hammered out at the conference, the Four Power Treaty and the Nine Power Treaty. The Four Power Treaty was fairly humdrum. Made between the US, France, Japan, and the UK, the treaty confirmed that the formal Anglo-Japanese alliance was over, but there would be a general peace in the Pacific. This was based on assurances from all parties that there would be no aggression in the far-flung island possessions of the Pacific, and that territorial control at that moment would be respected by everybody. The US came away happy that if the Japanese ever attacked, then they wouldn't have to fear the Royal Navy backing them up, while the Japanese were assured that if they themselves were attacked, that the other parties would ally with them in a defensive capacity. Not that anybody was angling for attacks during the 20s, this was all precautionary measures at that point. The Nine Power Treaty was a bit more contentious and had the most parties join in on negotiations, and this was because it concerned China. China was not a major naval nation, but its coastline was gigantic and offered harbors all across the West Pacific. There was also the matter of Japan interfering in the country during those years. They already kept the Feng Tian clique as clients in Manchuria, they occupied the Liaodong Peninsula outright, and since early in World War I, occupied the Shandong province. All the other powers meddled in China, but Japan was taking it to a whole new level, and everybody else wanted to have a talk. Luckily, the Japanese were actually in a conciliatory mood, not just on fleet sizes, but on the future of China as well. Remember that these negotiations took place from mid-November 1921 to early February 1922. 
This was during the time when the Siberian expedition was growing more unpopular by the day, draining resources, and sapping public enthusiasm for foreign adventures. The discussions on the Nine Power Treaty also came together after the first two treaties, so Japan was feeling more secure now that understandings between the great powers had been reached. The treaty established a long-held American dream for a global open-door policy to China. What this meant was China's markets would be open to any outside business without interference from other foreign powers. States would keep their concessions and manage trade, but could not unfairly discourage it. Which was ironic that the focus was on goods being exported to China, given what would happen a few generations later in that country becoming the world's premier exporter themselves. It also effectively called for outside states to not directly intervene in Chinese affairs, also important given the ongoing civil war there. Lastly, Japan agreed to give up Shandong province, finally removing a bone of contention that had plagued relations between the two countries for the past seven years. Unlike past treaties, the trio devised by the Washington Naval Conference found support in each nation that was a party to them. During the early 20s, those wishing to reconcile with the West were ascendant in Japan, and the nationalists were overruled. In Washington, the U.S. Senate was controlled by Henry Cabot Lodge. While Lodge had wrecked Woodrow Wilson's attempts at getting the Versailles Treaty through Congress, he turned around and rammed the Washington Conference treaties through almost instantly. Indeed, there was next to no debate allowed on the topic, and with the strong backing of Secretary of State Hughes and President Harding, the treaties sailed through the Senate. This was a rare moment where everybody came away happy and optimistic about the future. Global public opinion had been demanding disarmament and arms controls, and here the great powers actually delivered. And not in a half-hearted or sneaky way either. The results were simple, yet far-reaching. But despite the immediate success of the conference, over the long term, problems started to emerge. Not trying to be a downer, but this is a show about long-term failure after all. The American insistence on simple ratios to demarcate naval power might have been appealing for how simple a solution it was, but that triumph succeeded in reducing ship numbers and not a whole lot else. The underlying suspicions between states remained, with both the U.S. and U.K. remaining paranoid about Japan and vice versa. There was no finalized settlement of peace to back the treaties, and as internal politics among the powers changed, they gradually fell apart. The general peace in the Pacific was nice, but if the powers didn't see themselves as partners but as rivals, pledges of collective security couldn't be trusted. Then there were the technical failings of the treaties, most glaringly the failure to limit light ships and submarines. The Japanese embarked on a buildup of heavy cruisers, the largest possible ships that didn't have a tonnage limit. This would force everybody to sit down in London in 1930 for a second naval conference, where limits on those were actually put in place. Although by then, global conditions would have morphed all out of recognition. Even with the flaws, the Washington Naval Conference was a landmark, even in arms control, showing what was at least possible when all parties were committed to the idea of arms limitations. In a show about failure, this was at least a worthwhile endeavor that achieved results, which meant it was a solid start to the hoped-for process of a much more general disarmament among the powers of the world. The conference's main failing was that its success wasn't properly followed up on. The idea of restricted armies would wind up getting a lot more pushback, and we'll be getting into that next week. Speaking of, next time I'll be covering a number of diplomatic conferences and treaties during the 1920s, all of which sought to solidify peace in the world. I'll be looking at topics like the Genoa Conference, the Locarno Treaties, and the Kellogg-Briand Treaty. 
So if you love backbiting and people being suspicious of each other, you'll love it. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>